Good morning. Today is Trinity Sunday, if you didn't know, and so it's appropriate. Our passage, oh, sorry, our preaching topic for today is on the Trinity in salvation. Let us pray and then we will begin. Heavenly Father, Lord, help us to know you better today and in knowing you, respond to you. And so help us, Father, to pay attention today and work in our hearts through your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. One of my favorite classical music piece is Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture. It's played with a full orchestral accompaniment, and if you've heard it before, you'll know it's a masterpiece. Now it begins with the string section, consisting of the violins, the viola, the cello, the double bass, and all of this sets up the main melodic theme ever so gently. And even as you listen to it carefully, the, the brass section, the trumpets, the trombones, the French horn will suddenly chime in with what's known as a counter melody. So it blends together with the main melody to provide a rich and distinct sound, neither overpowering the other, but rather working together to bring out the composer's intent. And just when you think, ah, the music has settled down, the percussion suddenly jumps in. Now Tchaikovsky opted to use actual cannon fire instead of drums, so it really makes a strong impression. And as the percussion then builds up to a climax, then all the section, the strings, the brass, the percussions, all comes together in perfect harmony to blend all these distinct instruments into one melodic composition. Then, as you continue to hear throughout the piece, the different sections will cooperate and work in unity to bring forth a beautiful piece of music. Now, in the same way, in bringing forth the mystery of salvation, we will see the members of the Trinity working together in perfect harmony. Each one works in a different way, has a different role, but actually all three members work together perfectly to weave this tapestry of salvation that is so beautiful and perfect. So in coming to understand how the Trinity brings forth salvation, we come to know and appreciate the unity shared by the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we also come to get a deeper appreciation for God's plan for redemption and God's love. Now, before we delve into the role of the Trinity in salvation, we should seek to understand a little bit more about the nature of the Trinity. Now, I have to confess, even the most learned scholar or pastor cannot confess that they understand the Trinity completely. There is an element of mystery that we just can't grasp from this side of heaven. But, there is enough revelation about the Trinity so that we can say certain things with certainty about the nature of the Trinity. Firstly, we know that God is one. The Old Testament church confessed the Shema, the declaration of God's nature. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We worship only one God. There is only one God. But we must understand also that the one and only God who actually exists 
is the triune God. We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, as the Athanasian Creed puts it. This Trinitarian nature of God is seen in the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3. There, we see God the Father speaking from above, the Spirit descending like a dove and hovering over the waters, and the Son ready to do the will of the Father. We see, therefore, the three persons of the Trinity being revealed to us through, the, the, through that passage. And some commentators have pointed out how similar that baptism scene is to the opening of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. You see, there we see the Spirit hovering over the water. The Father then speaks His intent and the Word of God achieves God's purposes. And we can also see that Trinitarian formula for baptism as Jesus declared in the Great Commission. Notice in that verse how we are to baptize in the name singular, not plural, of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're talking about three different gods, we would baptize in the names, plural, of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So this shows us that there is unity in the persons of the Godhead. And it shows us the co-equal nature of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and how all three persons are one God. So from this, we can say that we affirm God as one being, but as three persons who exist eternally in perfect unity and love. And we want to understand that the three persons of the Trinity are not like Lego blocks that combine to form God. Each person of the Trinity is fully God. Neither should we say that there is one God who wears or puts on different faces or different roles, becoming the Father for a while, then becoming the Son when needed, and then becoming the Spirit in some interactions with humanity. That is blasphemy. Because in saying that, we reject the personhood of each person in the Trinity, despite the Bible clearly showing us that each member of the Godhead is a person and they interact with each other. Through the great mystery of the Trinity, we are shown that there is plurality within God's oneness. Within the Godhead, there are self-distinctions and each person is distinct from the others in the way that they eternally relate among themselves and the role that they take on in God's work. So the Father is one person, the Son is one person, and the Holy Spirit is another, again as declared in the Athanasian Creed. Now at this point, some of you are still thinking, so one or three? Well, we want to remember the Trinity is not a mathematical formula to be solved, but it is instead a divine mystery that reveals God's character and relationship within himself. So even though we do not understand this perfectly, it is enough for us to understand that God is one in being and substance, but is three persons, Father, Son and Spirit, who are united in that one substance, so that we can only say that the three persons are one being. So for our context today, 
we want to look more closely at how God's triune nature works in our salvation. So the first thing we want to see is the role of the Father in salvation. It is the Father's initiating love and divine plan that sets in motion the plan for our redemption. We see in John 3.16 that the Father loves the world so much that rather than destroy this world that has rejected God, instead, he wants to reconcile the world to himself. So in this clear demonstration of his love for us, we come to understand the reason God sent Jesus Christ to the world. Not to condemn, but to save as he has desired. In fact, it's not wrong to say that the Father is the one who orchestrated the salvation plan, as seen in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 3 to 6. The Father is the one who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The Father is the one who has chosen us in Him, even before we are born to be saved. In love, He predestined us for adoption, to become His sons through Jesus Christ. So the Father, because of His great love for us, determines that we are to become His. He does not want us to perish, even though Ephesians 2 puts it, that we are dead in our trespasses, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. In response to this, he sends his son, so that we may, through the salvation that Jesus brings, become his adopted sons. So this teaches us that God the Father has a will, a desire, a purpose for salvation. And so he initiates this plan of salvation and sends his son. Next, we look at the road of God the Son in salvation. Now we saw how the Father operates in salvation, but we also want to see that everything that the Father does for our salvation, he does through Christ. The Son responds to the Father's wishes and through His obedience to the Father brings forth salvation by going to the cross as a sacrifice for the sins of those He is to save. We see from John chapter 5, verse 19 that the Son is the one who does what the Father wills and does not come to do His own will. He comes to fulfill the Father's wishes. So through the work of the Son comes redemption for the world and for us. Now at the cross, Jesus did not only pay for our sins, but he also took all his righteousness that he earned through obeying God's commands perfectly by fulfilling the law without sinning and then he imputes it. He gives it to us. And through Jesus imputing his righteousness to us, we are then credited as having lived a perfect and obedient life, as if we were Jesus himself. And it is through that that we are adopted by the Father as sons. And so 
given a share in the inheritance of Jesus. So we are not just forgiven for our sins to become slaves, but we are then exalted as sons. So come and see this son, the eternal beloved God the Son, who came down and humbled himself to join us in our humanity. Jesus, the Son of God, co-equal with his Father in majesty, power and glory, became the Son of Man, so that many sons of man can now become sons of God. Through this, Jesus achieves the reconciliation that John 3.16 pointed towards, that in his love, God redeems the world and brings it to himself. Now more than that, the salvation that Jesus brought was not only functional, it is relational, right? We become sons to the Father and Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, becomes our brother. Such is the love of Christ that he bore our sins, he took them away and instead of condemning us as we rightly deserve, he does all of this so that now we can come into true relationship with him and the Father. And this is exactly what the Father intended as seen in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. And here we see that God the Father saves people for a relationship so that Jesus will be our brother. And by implication, since we become adopted sons, we can now call God the Father, Abba Father, just as how Jesus himself called him. So see that salvation is not only functional, but relational and restorative. Next, we look at the Holy Spirit's role in salvation. Now, just to clarify, Scripture makes it clear, the Holy Spirit is not a thing. The Holy Spirit is not an it. He is a person. And that's why he's referred to as a person and that's why we can, through our disobedience, grieve the Holy Spirit as seen in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. You can't grieve electricity or gravity. You can only grieve a person. So knowing that, how does he work in salvation? Now we know that the Father plans, he desires for the world to be redeemed and sinners saved, Jesus then functions as the executor of the Father's will. The Holy Spirit then functions as the enabler and finisher of the Father's will through Jesus. See, the Holy Spirit is the one who makes things happen. Think of the incarnation of Christ. In accordance with God's will of sending his Son into the world, we then see the Spirit responding by causing the Virgin Mary to become pregnant. So through this, the Holy Spirit is enabling the Son to take on flesh, to become fully human, while still retaining his full divinity. So it is through the Spirit then, that Jesus is able to take on human flesh, allowing him to fully relate to us in such a way, so that his sacrifice then, can be made on our behalf. 
We also see in Luke chapter 3, right, during the baptism of Christ, which signified the beginning of Christ's redemption work. And what do we see that? The Spirit came upon Christ. And this idea is captured in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, which describes the Spirit of the Lord enabling the Messiah to have wisdom and understanding, allowing him to be wise in counsel, giving him strength, and also giving Jesus knowledge and fear of the Lord so that Jesus can lead a sinless and perfect life that he may accomplish his mission. So the Spirit here works as an enabler and equipper who ensures that Jesus will be able to complete his mission. And this we see in John chapter 3, verse 34, which explains this to us. Now, even at the cross, we see from Hebrew chapter 9, verse 14, that it is through the Spirit that Jesus offers up his life as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. So, as we look to the role of the Spirit, we see that everything the Son does for our salvation is made possible through the help of the Spirit. Now, as we look to those of us who are saved, Ephesians chapter 1 teaches us that it is the work of the Spirit in us which even allows us to confess our faith in Jesus as our Lord. So the Spirit opens up our heart to the gospel, brings us to life in Christ, and then through faith, unites us to Christ to make us heirs to eternal life and give us sonship, that we become the sons of God the Father. We also see the work of the Spirit as the seal or the guarantee of our salvation. And this happens through the ongoing work of sanctification in us, where day by day we conform to become more like Jesus. So the Spirit, enabling the eternal Son to fulfill His mission, now continues that mission in the lives of all of God's sons. So having looked at all three persons and the different roles in salvation, we should now be able to comprehend that all three persons of the Trinity work together in different ways to bring about salvation, yet are united in one purpose which brings forth the will of God. The Trinity do not act against one another or even on one another, but with one another in our salvation. For example, Jesus did not die on that cross in order to convince the Father to change his mind about his anger and enmity towards us and draw him to love us. Rather, Jesus died because of the Father's love for us. So through this, we come to see that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. So now that we understand that, we should think about what's the implication then of what we have learned to the gospel message. As the Father desires salvation, the Son responds by taking on flesh and dying on the cross to bring about salvation, and the Holy Spirit enables the Son to complete His mission. And the Holy Spirit then brings to life those whom the Father has elected, so that the work of salvation is not in vain, 
And through that, many, many sons are gathered to the Father. And so the implication of this is that gospel work is something that God truly desires, actively works towards, and fully participates in. So if we are now adopted sons of the Father, should we not, being led by the Spirit, be sons who seek to follow the example of Jesus, who seek to do the will of the Father? And if we really believe that, then we should be gospel-minded people. We should be people who are ever seeking to bring others to come to know God to come to salvation. We cannot say, now that the Trinity has worked to bring salvation and I am safe in Christ, I can go on and live my own life and do my own thing. To do this is to miss out on what it means to become adopted, to us becoming adopted sons of the Father in heaven. We should be people who look to the example set by God and seek to bring about God's will through our obedience. Through the obedience of Jesus unto death, we are taught what it looks like, what it means to truly love God. So we must also recognize salvation is not merely a ticket to heaven. It is rather an invitation to enter into a loving relationship with the triune God. So to truly love God, we must respond to the work of salvation that the Father has initiated by being people who care about the gospel. So we must make efforts to preserve the gospel so it's not lost to rely on the gospel ourselves when we need to be reminded of what God has done in our life and to be people who seek to bring this gospel to all nations. And it is because of this reason that we see Jesus leaving us with the great commission to bring the gospel to the nations. So through this, we continue the works of Christ, the eternal Son of God, because we are also now made sons of God through Christ. So do not see evangelism as an optional part of being a Christian. Rather, evangelism should be the core character, the core thing that a Christian does. A Christian who does not evangelize is not behaving as a Christian. A Christian who does not evangelize is living in disobedience, not behaving as a son should. Therefore, church, I urge each and every one of you to reflect to see if you are living your life in response to your salvation, by preaching the gospel to others. Are you being true to the sonship that Jesus has offered to you through his death? Are you passionate about bringing the gospel? If you're not passionate, you do it grudgingly or half-heartedly, 
we are then like children who mutter and grumble as they obey their parents. I used to be like that when my mom asked me to wash the dishes. And my mom will always say, if you wash the dish, I have to wash again. It worked out well for me. Until today, mom said, never mind, you don't need to wash the dish. I'll wash it for you. But when we do that, when we don't care about the gospel, when we are just more busy with just living our lives, we become unworthy sons. Now, it may sometimes be hard to find passion for the gospel because it is difficult work. But what we should focus on when we are discouraged is knowing that through the act of proclaiming the gospel, we are continuing the work that God has started, the work that God has desired, and in doing that, we are living out what it means to be the sons of God. So today, as we celebrate Trinity Sunday, let us resolve to make a firm conviction towards our heart attitude when it comes to preaching the gospel. Let us see that when we do that, when we don't make excuses, and we preach the gospel clearly and faithfully, then we are doing the Father's will, just as Jesus, our brother, has so faithfully done. And are we not to seek to emulate Christ in every way? So don't make excuses. So as we come to God in prayer for help in evangelizing others, see, this is what God wants you to do. And God will equip you to do this because it is His will if you truly apply yourself passionately to obeying Him in this. So trust in Him, come to Him, and know that the Trinity in His fullness desires you to go forth and continue to preach the excellencies of God and bring the gospel to people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you thanks that in looking at the Trinity and how you have worked out throughout salvation, that we see your great love for us, that you have not only redeemed us, but adopted us. And now, Father, we come before you as your sons. All of us here, we pray, help us to change our ways, Strengthen us to preach your gospel. And those of us who are preaching the gospel faithfully, we ask for you to continue to sustain and strengthen us, Father. Put in us a desire and love to want to do your will, so that even as we do this, we glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.